This episode is sponsored in part by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast about the future of, well, everything. In this podcast, I talk to Craig Mod, a writer and designer who I'll introduce in a moment. We had such a great wide-ranging chat that, for the benefit of you, dear listener, we've broken our long talk into two parts. The first part follows in this podcast, in which we talk mostly about design and crowdfunding. The second part will air in a few weeks, and it covers Craig's subcompact publishing essay and the future of multi-format reading. Now, on to the show. Craig Maud writes essays that have the power to change the way you look at everything around you. At regular but somewhat distant intervals, he posts a long bit of writing that retrains your mind to see the world as he does. Craig is a writer, a designer, a publisher, and he spends most of his time between Palo Alto, Tokyo, and New York. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. I, I know that one of the words that you like is disruption, and so we seem a perfect fit. <laughs> it's great. It's a great word. <laughs> but you define it, I think, in a really specific way. I think the same way that I like to think about it is that it's not, it's disruption as an opportunity and a challenge, right. not as something awful, because you are often ahead of or part of that wave that's going into the next thing. You're not in the industry that's being left behind and refuses to accept that something's changing. Is that you're, you're in that uh, you're the oncoming wave as opposed to the building being swept away by it? Well, yeah, I've, you know, I've always kind of worked in the small independent spaces. So even when I was doing a lot of um, physical publishing, that was all you know, I mean, it was it was all part of the indie publishing world, indie press world. I mean, we had uh, the the publisher I was working with. We had you know national distribution in the U.S. and we'd come out to um, nationwide sort of sales conferences and things like that. So the scale was, felt quite big, but it was always within that kind of really compact. You know, all of the publishers around us only had you know maximum ten employees. We're putting out you know no more than say twenty books a year or something like that. So like sort of smaller scale. Uh, production. And so I think when you, when you live in that space, to me, disruption isn't scary because you have the ability to be as nimble as you need to be to change with the way systems are changing or the way distribution's changing. So yeah, no, I've always been, I've always, I've always loved small teams and I've always loved small sized projects. And so I think if that is where your focus is disruption is sort of it's almost like a it's like an energy drink of sorts if you don't have all this money and time mm -hmm. invested into something that's going to break when you change i mean right. it seems when i look at what you've done you have a lot of project-based work and project-based work you may build a company almost around a project mm -hmm. or several projects but then mm -hmm. to when i look at your career it looks like there's a shape of um not moving from one thing to another you know rapidly more like you have recurring themes about the kind of work you do your focus um and then the tools that enable them. But mm. in none of the cases are you invested in, you know, a platform, a technology, an industry that if it changes, you're doomed. Like your model is screwed if suddenly the iPad becomes the most dominant platform or if it's mm. not the most dominant platform. You seem very flexible in what you're interested in pursuing um, in terms of the means of getting what you do out as opposed to the the message that you're working on. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, th I think there's a certain amount of virtue in being kind of technology agnostic or platform agnostic you know my, I've, I've worked on so many different things over the last 
uh, 12 years. But you know, the thing that's been tying it all together is kind of just an, an interest in telling stories or, uh, or leveraging what, I guess, publishing at its very core uh, resonates to, which is you have a voice, you have a story, you have some sort of uh, message you want to tell, and, and, and publishing is just about how do you distribute that message? How do you reach an audience? How do you, how do you connect with that audience? And um, to be honest, I really don't care what the medium is. I don't care if it's iPads. I don't care if it's physical books. Uh, I don't care if it's you know, shooting flyers out of blimps. Um, <laughs> it's anything. Anything is fine. You know? and, and I think that, that uh, when you're focused on purely the message and when you're fo- focused purely on the storytelling component, then uh, you shouldn't be uh, afraid at all when, uh, when the technology changes. You should be uh, delighted because that means, well, it's going to change the way you tell the story maybe a little bit, but whatever. I mean, nothing was ever set in stone anyway. We, we latch on to, I think, certain mediums it's sort of it's part of our our genetic coding to sort of be afraid of change but the reality is is you know a lot of the things we've been using a lot of the tools we've been using aren't very old anyway well i think if you don't own a printing press it's a lot easier to throw the printing press away too <laughs> and or to say you know well uh you know i like i like your printing press very much but i also like this new thing this uh, new publishing platform that's digital and yeah. it doesn't you don't have to throw the printing press away i want to read something back to yourself you wrote this essay um about um print it's called books in the age of the ipad and it's three years old now i but know you, it's, it's scary one <laughs> of the things you wrote back then right the ipad was uh had the ipad shipped no this no, was no, no, no. No, no, a month it, before the iPad ship, but we were aware of it, right? The it, intro. It, it was, uh, so I actually, I started writing that essay in uh, September of 2009. Bef- when, so when it was the glimmer in, uh, in the rumor site's eyes that an iPad thing was coming. Yeah, and it, 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 was, it, was, it was actually, it started off as an essay called uh, The Books We Make. Books, it was just called Books We Make. And it was, uh, it was just that kind of manifesto bit. There's like at the end of Books in the Age of the iPad, there's this bit that says, you know, the books we make will be, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And um, uh, that essay started with that bit because... I had I had left the publishing company I was working with before. I'd spent a year kind of doing startupy stuff. I was you know just not working with books at all. Like 2009 was like all right, I'm 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 taking a break from books for a year. And towards the end of 2009, I mean, I was just like kind of feeling this. I was feeling this sort of existential pain. I was like, oh my god, I want to get how do how do I get back to books? How do I make more books? And uh, I was sitting there in September, and I was just like, you know what? If I'm going to make any more. F- books this is what they're going to be like this is this is how you have to make books now that it doesn't make any, it doesn't make sense to do anything else it doesn't make sense to make weird cheap throwaway things so yeah that that essay started three and a half years ago and then when the ipad was announced in january 2010 um that was just the catalyst to say oh okay cool the, these are the books we should be making print wise and here's the iPad, and what's going to fit into that? Well, let's 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 see how we can break these two two worlds apart. And that's that's kind of how that essay ended up uh, getting published. I think March, right at the beginning of March, right before South by Southwest, uh, twenty ten. Well, it's funny too because it's uh, what you were thinking even before having one of these things in your hand. 
has turned out to be, I think it's, it's prescient in the sense that you describe the experience that everyone probably should be working towards. And three years later, we're finally starting to achieve some of what you were defining as the ideal experience as we break away. But the thing, you know, the thing I wanted to quote from the essay was sort of funny. It wasn't about the iPad part. It was, you said, from 2003 to 2009, I spent six years trying to make beautiful printed books, six years focused on printed books in the, in the Audis, the zero zeros. And I want to talk about that for a second, because I think this plays into a lot of what comes, you know, because so many people in the book world, especially book designers, uh, had abandoned it. They moved to different fields. They were doing a lot of designers. I know how to switch to web design or doing integrated design. And the web became the focus across the 2000s. And I think there was a perception to people outside of book publishing that because the sales figures tapered off. And in fact, I don't think they've actually, they've slowed, but they haven't, um, book sales haven't declined as such. They just stopped their curve upward. And there's been this shift to digital editions that confuses it too. But there's still, you know, plenty of books. There's billions of books printed. And I don't think there's ever been a better time in the last decade to print books well. And I think that gets lost. You you were in publishing in this period when there were all these new tools for print making great print books. Mm. And I, when you say you stayed in that during the 2000s, you're sort of making fun of yourself for being, you know, sounding atavistic. But isn't this the case that you were enjoying this incredible renaissance in, in printing technique, even as people thought books, print books are dying? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, the work, the work that we were doing 2003, 2008, uh, you know, that, that work and the ability to do that work was, was as much a, a product of the digital shift as anything else. Um, I recently have been telling this story at, at talks that I give where uh, three and a half years ago, I went, so right before, actually, right after I started writing uh, the Books We Make essay, um, and before I published the books in the age of the iPad, I ended up going to Nepal. And I went on this trip to Nepal. I just decided, Nepal had kind of been on my list of places. I really want to go to Nepal. And um, uh, I had read John Wood's book. John Wood is the, uh, the founder of uh, A Room to Read. And A Room to Read is this kind of great nonprofit that's built. Uh, they've built about 14,000 libraries in the last 10 years all throughout oh. Southeast Asia. Yeah, wow. I mean, really just, just amazing work. John Wood was the, the VP of Microsoft Asia, and he went to Nepal, and he climbed up a mountain with a guide, and they got to a village, and the village chief was said, hey, you know, do you want to see our library? And um, he went to the library, and it was basically a shack with three books in it. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, this is your library? How can this be? This isn't a library. <laughs> and the, uh, the chief was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Maybe next time you come to Nepal, you can bring a bunch of books. And uh, John was like, hmm, that's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> so he quit Microsoft and he went to back to some sort of rural bit of America. And he just started gathering books. And then he shipped them to Nepal. He put them on donkeys because there's no... There's no roads that lead up the mountain, so you need. Oh, yeah. I've seen pictures from that time. I didn't realize that was him. I saw photo. You know, you see these pictures of donkeys, like caravans, With carrying books, books up mountains. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So this is this is so he's you know put the books on donkeys and <laughs> bring them up to the villages. So hey, he's been doing this, and I read his book, and I was just like, my God, I have to. I need to go to Nepal. I need to see this place that makes uh, that makes men leave their you know multi million dollar you know <laughs> VP jobs. So I, I went up this mountain with this this guide. Uh, his name is Home. H-O-M. And um, so I had this guy at home. He was, he was like 22, 23 at the time. 
And we go up the mountain. We became very close. He sort of like became like a brother. I mean, just this wonderful, warm-hearted uh, uh, individual. And we came down the mountain, and he invited me to his village. Um, and he sort of lives in this, literally, this little kind of earthen hut with his mother and father and sisters, and the cousins are nearby. And I was photographing them all, as you do on a trip like this. You know, you, you take photos of all these folks, and... And then I left and said goodbye, and it was you know a teary, a tear filled filled goodbye and whatnot. And uh, I came back at that time. I was living in Tokyo, and I came back to Tokyo, and I was looking through the photos, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll make I'll just make a book with this. I'll make a blurb book. Why not? You know, this is this is what we do now. It's so easy. You know, it's effortless to put these things together. So I sat down for an hour, and I put together a. Um, a blurb book, you know, uh, blurb is a print on demand, uh, company here in San Francisco. Um, they do, uh, really cool, really cool work. Eileen, the CEO sort of founded the company, um, focused on photography, photo books. Yeah. Their, their photos are, I mean, that's one of their things before that you could get, okay, you know, text, but they have, um, gorgeous output. Yeah, no, f- phenomenal. Right. And so, I put together the blurb book, takes me an hour. I put in home's address, which is literally, you know, third rice paddy, you know, past the mountain in the village over somewhere in Nepal. And I just think this is never going to get to them, right? They're never going to get this book. And um, I, I don't hear anything. And two years later, a friend of mine is going to uh, Annapurna and she's looking for a guide. She wants to go do uh, base camp. And so I say, oh, I got your guide. Home is your man. So I introduce her to home. They go on the trip. They come down from the mountain. She goes to his house in the rice paddy. And they're all sitting in, in kind of in the earthen kitchen and they just sit on the floor. And it's the mother and the father and the, the grandmother's there. And uh, the father gets up and, and, and leaves and comes back with this bundle of cloth, right? And he puts the cloth, pile of cloth on the ground and he starts unwrapping it. And inside this sort of bundle of rags is the book that I sent them. Oh my god! <laughs> and, and she and my friend comes back and she's like, "Craig, they love that book. Oh they that's their treasure." And and I I love this story because we forget a, a few things. We forget a few things, right? One, we forget the fact that for most of the world, a book is rare, right? It's it's this thing that. Maybe you you have access to it in schools, but you certainly don't have many of them in your homes, you know. And and as the case was in that library in the village in Nepal, maybe there's only three books in your library. But we also forget the crazy magic. I mean, I was worried that I I had, I had offended these people, that I had stolen their souls, that they thought that they, they thought I had I had published their faces, you know, and and they were in bookstores all around the world because you know who in Nepal knows that you can make just one book of you know the fact that you can print one beautiful book of photography and and it doesn't cost you anything it costs you know $40 and you have this beautiful you know 1 foot by 1 foot book of photography uh that you can send to anyone for for a very small cost and so you know imagine getting this where a book is is absolutely not a commodity um seeing your faces in it i mean there's something incredibly moving about that and that the ability to produce those books you know the blurb and the work that Eileen's doing that is 100% connected with the digital shift as is the Kindle as is as much as the iPad and iBooks and things like that and we forget that 
And, you know, uh, this is a, you know, very circuitous way of saying, yes, Glenn, I totally totally agree. (laughs) Let's take a break to thank a sponsor. Look, I've spent 20 years writing HTML by hand, but it's 2013 for crying out loud. Why should I be writing code to create web pages today? And don't even get me started on trying to make decent-looking galleries of photos. Fortunately, Squarespace has a solution for me. I can use their templates and -and drag-and-drop elements right into a web browser to create pages. I can move things around. I don't have to dive into the code at all to make great-looking pages that work on all browsers, desktop, and mobile. On top of that, their best deal comes with unlimited bandwidth, so if you get fireballed or reddited, your pages will keep on serving. And you get a free domain and 24 by 7 support. They've got an offer for you. Go to squarespace.com slash new disruptors to start a free trial. No credit card is required. If you decide to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code new disruptors four to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com slash new disruptors offer code new disruptors numeral four. Now back to the podcast. There's this means of production thing. I've talked about it in previous podcasts a bit, so I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid not repeating myself because, uh, as I'm contractually obligated to say, I was trained as a graphic designer. Now mm-hmm. people at home are laughing and listen to the podcast regularly, but it's true. I come from a graphic design background and was working with digital at the same time, and I don't think. It's another one of those things that I don't know if you're outside of kind of a bubble uh, or have the historical background. It is so vastly easier to make the front end part, like to create the parts of a book Mm. to, I mean, like InDesign or anything like that. Like the current tools we have are like a thousand times better than we had 30 years ago. And they're probably like 20 times better than we had 10 years ago because we have, or maybe a hundred even, because we have computers that are fast enough to let you work in real time interactively with print design and and interactive design as opposed to being you know i can't remember i'm sure you have the same experience because you've been doing this long enough that the amount of time i spent waiting for a computer to do something in a 2d flat space and having crashes and being unable to work with large enough files Mm -hmm. that all takes a toll now we're working completely real-time interactively with inexpensive computers and we have the best tools that have ever been made and those tools now provide that i think where you're going with this was that they provide that ability to pivot and say we don't have to i mean we can target and we're making a book that's a beautiful book and it's designed to be printed and it's designed to be maybe a pdf and so forth but we also have the tools and flexibility and power to now not be limited by the notion of going to press and that's our only thinking because we put so much time and effort into getting it to press we can't afford to do anything else while a lot of that overhead's been removed too absolutely yeah well, and I, and I, you know, I came into it too in the, uh, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, right when it was it was right at that period where Quark Quark was going out of style. Quark was dying, right? <laughs> yeah. And yes. uh, I, I mean, I, there were certain things I loved about Quark, but uh, you know, InDesign, uh, even in the beginning, was just it was just so so fresh, right? It was just so nice. It was one of these things. It's one of these things that I think is happening right now with. Um, companies like like WordPress and Medium, right? I was having a conversation yeah. with, with someone last night about, you know, what is Medium? What is Medium? I, I, I should disclose that I, I'm, I'm an advisor for Obvious Corp and, uh, and I'm helping Ev and, and them out with Medium. And um, uh, it feels like WordPress is part of this 
this ethos from 10 years ago where it was, you know, it feels like it, it came out of this world of let's install Perl scripts on our servers, you know, let's get, you know, movable type working, let's do PHP scripts, and let's have this complicated management system in the back end that feels disconnected from the content itself. And Medium is still obviously figuring out what its voice is and what it is exactly. But that qualitative experience as a writer right now, uh, between the difference between the two is, is really striking. I mean, it, it feels, it feels a lot of ways when I, like I felt when I started using InDesign, uh, compared to Quark. It was just, it was closer, InDesign brought you kind of closer to what that output was going to be. Um, and it seemed a little bit more aligned with the contemporary, the, you know, Quark actually wasn't available for OS X for years, right? I mean, that was one of its, mm-hmm. it lost so much steam because of that. Um, and I remember I was on, on OS X and InDesign worked with it and, and everything kind of rendered a little bit better. The fonts looked a lot better. And so there are these kind of weird technology shift points where one technology was based off of Quark clearly was born from a, uh, a stew of print sort of methodology and it felt it felt kind of analog in a way and then in design you start using it and you go oh this feels a lot more indigenous to these these computers and these devices that we're using and it's uh, developed a lot over the years it's gotten more and more uh, like that uh, my friend David Blattner and uh, Anne-Marie Concepcion do a conference that is now largely focused on how you get stuff out of InDesign and into other things uh, mm. because there's so many containers in which you can put it and InDesign winds up being for the right kind of uh, starting point it winds up being the right tool and uh, my friend Serenity Caldwell gave this talk I've linked to in a previous podcast at the Singleton Du conference last October in Montreal about the the workflow they use at Macworld to make ebooks where InDesign is in there and oh my god it's still such a nightmare but it's getting better and better like each iteration they're figuring it out and I I think you published an item in one of your essays that was and here's the thing that so and so told me how to do um, you know here's the workflow for this component and you had to expand it to see it because it was so horrible you didn't want to include all this technical detail in the middle of the essay because you worried you would frighten people off well it was I think it was longer than the essay actually (laughs) yeah well, Serenity gave an hour talk in which she skimmed the surface of the different methodologies they pulled. But the thing I want to back up to in terms of disruption and talking about InDesign is you think about uh, the print side, just the print side alone, before we even get into the digital part and the you know um, reactive, uh, uh, flexible design and so forth, and, and targeting multiple platforms and mm-hmm. so forth, is that it used to be printing a book was this huge thing, right? It's this ordeal. There's all this make-ready. You had to make, mm-hmm. um, you know, do paste-up boards and then make film and make plates and it was a huge cost and if you went on press you had to make 10,000 books and at 10,000 books if you sold all those books a publisher might make some money if they were lucky right. and then you get down to okay well now we remove this paper paste up part it's all in the machine we're producing film then you get rid of film and it's we're producing direct to play and then you get to this point where the new kinds of printers can image or, or like even offset presses can practically image on the press and so you can get down to make a very very small number of books that are of the same quality that you used to have to do these big print runs and spend this huge huge overhead to make worthwhile. So now you go even further and you go to Blurb or all these other print-on-demands where the original print-on-demand systems met the... I mean, you talk a lot, I think... um, So you talk a lot about Christian Clayton and his thing about disruption is that 
people come in and they scoop out the worst part of an industry that nobody cares about. And by the time they make <laughs> that efficient, they sort of have taken over the market. And you can see that like print on demand started, it was terrible, you know, and it right. was this, well, it'll be there someday. I remember using machines in the late 1980s from Xerox and they were like, ah, oh, you know, it does this and has a binding unit, but this is a replacement for doing photocopying. It's a little bit better. And then slowly, 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 you get to the level of the machines that Blurb uses or HP and MagCloud uses to make one-off, you know, almost one-of-a-kind magazines. And suddenly, we're at a point just in the print world, before we even get to digital, where you can make extremely high-quality, low runs, and they're affordable, both for the producer to put the time into and the consumer, purchaser, you know, community to buy. And mm. that, to me, is a massive disruption that I think is hidden because all the focus is on digital. So, I mean, I think mm. I don't want to just sh you know, shove that to the side, but that seems to me when we start talking about one of your essays, the uh, Books in the Age of the iPad, is March mm. 2010, then you wrote uh, not that much longer. This was later that year. You wrote Kickstarter, where mm. suddenly we have this wonderful overlap between Kickstarter was, what, like nine months, ten months old at that point? They'd only started in 2009. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you had a book that you'd already produced in this previous world of making books, and you got the rights back, and you wrote this fantastic essay, this July, August 2010, about part of this disruptive transformation about using, you know, using electrons to interact with atoms. What led you to write this enormous and, and incredibly useful essay? I've used, I've consulted <laughs> it many times. What led you to write about this experience in such depth? All of my neuroses. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well, should you describe the project too, because I don't want to. I mean, people can read it. We'll send them to the essay too. But, sure, sure. but so the scope. There's a book called Art Space Tokyo, and you would right. you would work with a, another publisher before this to make this book. Yeah, this well, that, that was the publisher that I was uh, sort of uh, I helped co-found back in in 2003, and so that, that was kind of the Art Space Tokyo was sort of the last book that I did with them, um, and it also it was also the first book I did, kind of. As it was the first book I owned the entire process on, so mm. it was, I was like, I want to make. We should make this book, and then I found um, I was I was brainstorming with Ashley Rollins, who's a, a sort of an art aficionado over in in Tokyo. At that time, he was in Tokyo, and then he came out to New York for the last couple of years. Uh, he's working for Art Asia Pacific as an editor, and now he's he's actually back in Tokyo now. He's 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 running the Tokyo Gallery for Blum and Poe. Uh, mm. Blum and Poe is a is a pretty well known um, Los Angeles. Angeles gallery that deals with Japanese artists and they focus on uh, this style of Japanese art called manaha which is sort of a post-war style of Japanese art and a Ashley actually happened to uh, do his thesis on manaha so he's like he's 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 kind of just <laughs> this this really uh, uh, sort of deeply versed guy in, in the Japanese art world and so I, I was talking with Ashley and I was like we should do a book about the galleries out here mm. and um and so coming up with the concept, working with Ashley to go and interview all these galleries, putting the whole thing together, designing it, uh, finding the artists. So Takahashi Nobumasa did all the, uh, the beautiful illustrations inside the book. And I, I remember going to his, uh, his studio out in the outskirts of Tokyo and it was in the, in the middle of the winter and we're sitting in this sort of kerosene lit, uh, fueled, uh, uh freezing house and, uh, eating chocolate. And I, I remember I was so nervous because we had a budget of about, you know, $50 to pay this guy. And, uh, uh, and I explained the, <laughs> explained the project to him, and I said, D "Are you interested?" And he's like, "Sure." And he's like, "How many illustrations do you need?" And I'm like, 
we only uh, about 70 and he's like fine that's great and, you know, <laughs> i was like oh my god he's gonna do 70 illustrations for it. so yeah it was it was the first book that 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 i kind of owned the you know the the entire process and managed the entire process so it, it, it held a special place in my heart um but fundamentally it's a guidebook to tokyo through the art world through the galleries through the museums mm-hmm and so, and so this came out as a conventional book, and you sold through normal channels, right. and and, uh, and it had its it had its run. But you uh, saw a way to use this new tool because Kickstarter had come out. You'd started to see people doing various projects that were starting to raise in the thousands and then tens of thousands of dollars. I had um, uh, uh, Jesse Genet and um, Stephen Anglovan on uh, earlier from uh, Lumi, which makes a, a sunlight fixing fabric dye and mm. they were very early they've done two rounds and their early one was they did it in late 2009 they raised I think something over $10,000 beat their goal and the Kickstarter mm. folks flew out to California to celebrate because it was the big you know <laughs> and this was like January February 2010 now this is later in the year and you're thinking what you're thinking hey I want to do something else with this book I haven't exhausted what I want to do with it well I, I actually contacted Kickstarter so when I was writing the, the, the books we make manifesto um um, at the same time, I contacted Kickstarter, and, and, and I, at that time, you had to kind of write to them, and you had to sort of, it was almost like applying to a fellowship, you know, it's like, I remember emailing with, uh, with Casey uh, Marcos, I think, I think her last name is. Uh, she recently just left the company. She was there from from kind of the beginning. She was sort of the community gatekeeper. Mm. Uh, and I remember being Casey. I want to do this. Uh, we made this book, and we want to reprint it. And and uh, I remember getting the okay back in September two thousand nine to do the project. And then it wasn't until yeah May of twenty ten that it felt like okay, yeah, the timing's right. Um, and then yeah, can I do like this armchair psychoanalysis of you, which is you're, <laughs> you're actually awesomely deliberate in an age in which everyone is, including myself is hasty. The fact that like you had an essay that you started in September and you finished it the next year that you started this project and you didn't leap in. There's a deliberation in what you do that I wanted to highlight as being incredibly useful. And even though you work so seamlessly in the digital world, like there's this, this like the rock against the flow of water sense of what you do because that's so unusual to find people who actually stop and think. Right. So anyway, I'm sorry, but I think that's, I think it's worth pointing out that there is a value to, to planning anyway. So, so you'd gotten the approval and, and worked for months to pull the pieces together. Right, right, right. And it, yeah, and it, it kind of came together, you know, and it was one of these things I, I, I have an allergy. I, I mean, I really, 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 really don't like doing things halfway. I don't like, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think it took me so long to to, to do the Kickstarter project is I was waiting for a, a true opening in my schedule. You know, I was like, where is the opening? Where is the opening? <laughs> and um, Ashley and, and I both had May of 2010 pretty free for whatever reason. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. We're going to do it then. But, you know, the prep for that was huge. You know, we spent weeks emailing media and setting up sort of uh, blog uh, uh, posts on a bunch of you know related sites. We uh, in the Kickstarter essay at the bottom, you can see all of the media that we contacted and uh, all of the kind of the articles that were written about the Kickstarter campaign for us during the campaign. And obviously, you can't start the campaign and then go drum you know bang the drum to to get that. You have to set that up a month a month in advance or whatever. So and it was it was a little easier back then. I would say at some level because what you were doing was unique. I, I remember interviewing Cory Doctorow for a, I wrote an economist piece and I think it ran in mid 
2010 about Kickstarter because it, it started to, every time I called Kickstarter for this article, it got delayed a little bit. They were like, oh, we've done $5 million in, uh, in, in fundraising. Oh, 10 million. Oh, wait, it's right. 15 million. You're about to go to press. We're at 15 million. It was accelerating that fast. And right, I remember right, talking right. to Cory Doctorow, who has kind of done various sorts of personal crowdfunding, or he's done pre-sale things that look a little bit like crowdfunding and so forth. And his thing was, well, you know, this is May 2010. I'm talking to him. There's a little bit of a fab with this because you're the first one to do X. Like everyone who does Kickstarter now gets the attention. Like the first book to the first this, mm. the first that. And he's like, what happens when you get donor fatigue? What happens when you exhaust the people and the media outlets interested in it? And we'll we'll come back to this theme. But mm. I think that certainly when you went to people in 2010 said, let me explain what crowdfunding is to you. Let me explain what this book is. Let me explain my planning. It was probably a much stronger story to them. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way at, at that time, I think the biggest it may have been the biggest Kickstarter campaign ever was Scott Thomas's uh, Obama book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so designing Obama. I, mean, I don't know if you remember. I mean, it was like perfect timing. It was, you know, the election had just happened, uh, I guess about a year earlier. He, he'd done the book at the end of 2009. And, you know, he was the design coordinator for for the campaign. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, or he was the, the digital design coordinator. And, um, you know, the energy behind that was just so great. And he did his designing Obama book, and he raised eighty five thousand dollars, I think. Yeah, and it was crazy. That yeah, that was like that was like November. That was November two thousand nine, November December, I think. And it was. I remember watching that happen, and everyone, everyone was just like, "Oh my god!" You know, ninety thousand dollars for a you know a crowdfunded book. That was that was that was insane. So there were precedents, um, but yeah, as you say, it was it, there was a certain novelty to it, I guess. Um, that that we were able to play off of, which was you know it's always good, but um, I don't think it was I don't think it was strictly necessary. I, I think the novelty was a was a small mm. bit a small bit of it, and it, it it made for a nice story. But I also think that you know I mean I'd like to think that the the project was compelling enough to to garner some attention to. Well, and you had all the, you had all the pieces of it. I think what would be a successful Kickstarter today, although now it's possible to be many multiples of that, even with the same parameters, is that you had a unique thing. The reward and the project were well aligned. The reward mm. was for if you got at whatever level was something that was really a unique work of art, even though there were mass produced elements of it. But it was it was something you couldn't easily obtain otherwise. And you have a niche of people that is fairly large that's going to be very interested in this topic and so you mm-hmm. only need to get a small percentage which all seem to be keys to making something work on Kickstarter I mean there are things that people deliver that are not unique that are mass produced but I think there has to be a more crying demand and a much larger potential audience for those and things that have this handmade um, quality that appeals to you know aficionados let's say right 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 well any you know I mean we, we only raised uh, only I say only you know it's twenty basically twenty four thousand dollars and then you take away the <clears throat> the cuts for Amazon and for Kickstarter and yeah you know it's 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 uh, you end up bringing home about twenty grand to to work on the project and which was great for us I mean that was amazing that was that was at the time an incredible amount of money especially for for an indie indie esque book you know um, and especially knowing the numbers I mean I had been doing indie books for at that point you know seven eight nine years and um, 20 grand in the bank for any indie publisher is an exciting thing. Let's pause to thank one of this week's sponsors, audible.com. 
Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. It has over 100,000 titles in its catalog across almost every genre. Listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere, on your iPhone, iPad, Android phone or tablet or BlackBerry, or on a desktop computer via iTunes or other software. Audible is offering New Disruptors listeners a free audiobook as part of a 30-day trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors to take advantage of Audible's offer. Use it to listen to Joe Walton's luminous, award-winning book, Among Others, a fantasy book that breaks the mold. It's one of my favorites. That's audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors. Let's return to the podcast. And you didn't have to do pre-sales. You wouldn't have, right. to, deal with the, you'd have to deal with credit card processing. Right, you didn't have right. to deal with all of the mechanics of it. You had a list of people you could contact when you were ready to ship stuff out. And they even ran the mailing list for you. I mean, not that it was too hard in 2010 to do that. But sure, still, sure. they even handled the communication aspects. Well, and, and like getting, you know, getting addresses. You could send out a form to everyone. I mean, they, they, there's definitely certain aspects that were, that were uh, really well done uh, and, and uh, provided tremendous value being on the platform. I think that one of the nuggets of what you said back then that I think rings true, I mean, three years later seems like so much later with the acceleration of what's happened. You said the micro seed is micro seed capital without relinquishment of ownership. And that seems to be at the core of, I mean, I think of a lot of your thinking as I read your essays, but also a lot of the appeal of Kickstarter is that it's, it's, um, even though there are aspects that are like pre-sales, there's a different kind of commitment and relationship that's formed. But in the end, mm. the person creating the work still owns it. They haven't had to get investors. They haven't had to get bank loans. They haven't had to commit to people who have anything but the interest in the work being produced for the sake of the work being produced. Mm. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's a huge value, huge value. I mean, it was $20,000 in the bank. We had to produce, you know, and, and you should I, you know, we were pricing the campaign in such a way that, you know, it would more than cover costs, obviously. So we were, you know, we were, we were charging for the book what the book was going to cost at retail, uh, in the campaign, a little bit less, I think. And, you know, what that, what that meant is that we had enough capital to, uh, create something that was a little more sustainable. You know, if you do a Kickstarter campaign, all you're doing is, is relinquishing cost. It kind of doesn't make any sense, especially when you think of all the time and effort you put into it. And so being able to get capital, that provided uh, a boost for the next stage and what you want to work on without giving up any equity, especially at that time, you know, the Y Combinator was just starting to kind of pick up steam a little bit. I'd actually been out in California uh, six months earlier talking with Paul Graham, you know, and it was this kind of weird thing where it's like they'll give you $15,000 and they take 10% of your equity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so to kind of be able to get $20,000 or $25,000 from uh, your supporters and give up nothing felt... You know, and obviously there's a lot of value add to Y Combinator and things like that. But just from a pure numbers perspective, from a pure uh, sort of uh, new world or uh, new model venture capital uh, perspective, that was that was really exciting. Also, another th- another thing that was exciting was 2009 ended, and I had like 500 followers on Twitter. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's no one. I, I you know, no one was reading anything I was I was doing. You know, I I, I, I was I was a totally unknown quantity. And then end of 2009, I, I published a GF1 article, uh, and then I published uh, sort of Anna, the Annapurna article, and then I published books in the age of the iPad, and then I published. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. This is <laughs> this was, it was like it was you know it was like a big six months, and suddenly I had I, I don't know at the time it was like six thousand Twitter followers and, and huge three and, years ago. Yeah. Oh, oh, and for me it was I was just like oh my god what do I what do I do with all these people what does this mean what does this mean and and so the Kickstarter campaign part of the fun of it was. You know, in the end, it was like, it was, it was being able to point at that community. It was to be able to point at all 
Jesus followers and say, okay, you guys are, are from a, a purely financial perspective, you're kind of worth $25,000 to me for this kind of project. <laughs> you know, it was like, but it was yeah, like, yeah. it was great. It was like pulling back the curtain. It was like, what the, what the hell is, you know, 5,000, 6,000 Twitter followers? What does that mean? What does that really mean? And then being able to do something like this and seeing the multiple, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the magnification effect of having quote unquote an audience, um, manifest in actual dollars in the bank account that that manifested in a physical thing and reprinting this thing and working on this project that was so satisfying that was really really really, that was probably like the most high inducing component of the entire process was like okay this is what this is worth this is this is the value i've created by working on these other things which in and of themselves kind of didn't produce explicitly tangible financial returns. Well, this is something we were talking before the podcast and I stopped us because I thought this is a great thing we should talk about in the podcast was mm. one of the benefits of working directly of, of being your own publisher in, in this model where you're saying prospectively, I'm going to see how, I'm going to see how much people love me, they, how much they love the thing I'm doing <laughs> and they vote with money. I, I keep saying like Kickstarter yeah. is voting with money and people vote. Uh, Amanda Palmer told me this thing in an interview um, after she'd done her Kickstarter last year. And I don't, I'm sure she said it elsewhere, but it was this thing about when she she was a busker, the amount of money people gave her did not correspond to how much money they thought she was worth. It was how much money they had to give, and she found and that's how she built her Kickstarter reward levels, and mm. it turned out to be true, is that people mm. give according to sort of what they are capable of, not necessarily worth. So when I say people vote with money, it's that can be a $25 vote or a $500 vote, but it doesn't make the $500 vote necessarily more worthwhile. It's, it's necessary in order to achieve goals, but it's still the same kind of like, yes, I support you, but I support you at this level that I can afford to, as opposed to this other one. Mm. But we, but we were talking before before the podcast about the notion of scale of audience. Is you mm. did not need uh, ten thousand people to make this work. In the end, you had how many people did the. Uh, you had 262 pledges at the end, raised $23,000, right? If I'm looking at your uh, your totals here, that yeah. is a tiny number of people. And yet the quantity of money lets you not just print this book, but if I recall this story correctly, you when you talk about Kickstarter, anyone talks about Kickstarter, I think of it literally that most of the projects I know that were good, um, you know, they get to a certain crazy scale, then there is a lot of profit. You know, when those order of the stick figure, they're $1 million plus project. I hope they netted 200, 300 thousand dollars after all sure, the fulfillment because sure. that's just at that scale there is profit in it right there is a margin sure, um, but for something that's a smaller project you know in the ten thousand to even five hundred thousand dollar range what I've seen the most successful projects do is they use the money they basically they eat you know ramen and, and literally and in your Tokyo eating ramen and they're <laughs> using it or, or I just had uh, it was delicious I had um, uh, yoshoku uh, yesterday western style Japanese food oh, nice. and uh, so you can eat that too but so the um, the point is sorry the point is that you <laughs> Ramen, ramen, ramen in Tokyo, by the way, can be very expensive if you know oh, if you know where to look. It's, I, it's, I've heard it's, it's, a, it's the uh, connoisseurship problem. Um, <laughs> but so the the most successful projects they use it literally to kickstart by, and I think you did this is you're paying for the production costs and all the time of all the people outside of yourself. Mm. You may be trying to make your rent and eating ramen, but you're paying for everything else. So you didn't just print, you know, the X hundreds of copies you needed to make that. You made, use the money, if a, a, a chunk of it or most of it, right, to um, to have a larger edition printer than you could have afforded if you were, say, doing a pre-sale model or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we, we, we dumped 
all of the money back into the uh, into into producing as many copies as we could. Um, and so because it, it made sense to use that as because that was money that was it wasn't free money, but it was money that wasn't tied up with something else. It was money that was coming in for a particular purpose. So you could go on press and say we're going to print a thousand instead of four hundred or three hundred, right, right. and then you have these objects that have intrinsic value you've already paid for. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, and it wasn't just like oh we want to maximize profits off of this or anything. Right. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like it was. We love this book. We want to make as many as possible. We want this to be, uh, you know, in the world uh, at at as great a scale as makes sense. I mean, like this book. This is clearly a niche book. There's probably. I mean, be, you know, speaking honestly, there's probably 3,000 people in the world for whom this book is really, 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 really important. You know, and that's it. Maybe, maybe, maybe 3,000 is, is even too many. But, you know, if we could get, say, that, that many copies in the world, three to 5,000 copies into the world of this physical thing and then have a digital edition that, you know, can live forever and, you know, people can download it as they, as they see fit, even if the print edition is gone. Uh, that's great, but you know the you know the the, the the tangential benefit of producing as many copies as you can is that every single copy we sold after fulfilling the Kickstarter component was one hundred percent profit mm-hmm. and and one of the you know a couple of decisions i 've made over the last two or three years regarding publishing is that i don 't work with I, I definitely don't work with national distributors anymore. I definitely don't work with big bookstores. I'll work with small bookstores that I love, um, but I don't work on a commission basis. So I'll say if you if you want to carry the book, five copies, but you have to buy them all ahead of time. Yeah. I, like you're going to sell them. It's it, because the overhead of following up uh, with with the bookstores is just it's it's crazy you know it's like it, does, it I, I need to hire someone full-time to basically keep track of of, of bookstores whether or not they've paid whether they need, they need to be invoiced or whatever so that was that was one decision and the corollary of that is that not many bookstores want to do that so we sell most of those books over amazon and i handle my own fulfillment my printer in tokyo actually handles fulfillment and so the cost of uh, uh, distribution for us is baked into the price, and it's baked into the, the obviously the shipping costs and all that. But what the result is is that we're getting we're netting I think something like thirty. I'm happy you know I'm happy to talk numbers. We're talking like yeah. we're, we're netting like thirty to thirty five dollars profit per book. That we sell. Yeah, that's astonishing. That's and insane. That, that's insane. But then, yeah. That's why you need such small, and so you need small numbers. That's what's fascinating to me is what well, the thing we were, the thing I will bring up that we we're talking about before the podcast. We we're talking about comedy podcasts and and talking about the size of audience uh, for which we'll talk about. When we get to the subcompact publishing essay. We were talking about the size of audience that the, the, the Mark Arment's the magazine that I edit requires to make it work too. And the idea that you that you know if you're in a conventional publishing world, even with the reduced costs of printing this happened, even with an art publisher who who could have published this for you uh, if you'd gone to them and they'd agreed and whatever. After all the costs are involved, the printing costs, the overhead and all that, you have to sell 10 times or 20 times as many books. You need such huge scale to make it work. But here, you can be selling literally hundreds of books and be making a substantial profit off it. And it'd be worthwhile for you to have gone through the whole experience to make it happen. And you mm-hmm. own it. So mm-hmm. then when it comes to, I mean, I think that, you know, you wrote this essay last year, Platforming Books. Uh, basically, I'm telling everyone who's listening to the podcast, go you know, spend a couple of days and read everything on all the essays on Greg's site. But Platforming Books was then the transition of taking this into the next realm. Although, now wait, I should interrupt myself because 
want to go back to one thing about the Kickstarter <laughs> part because we're gonna. I want to cycle back to this sure, when we sure. talk about um, uh, one of the things that you did that I know that Kickstarter loved at the time because I was interviewing them at the time and I heard from tons of other people and I pointed to it is you figured out even with the early Kickstarter projects what the distribution of pledges was across all these projects like what dollar volume were people paying for and I think it worked out to twenty five fifty a hundred two fifty and five hundred were the sweet spots across the top grossing projects mm. as of March 2010. And what's funny is that is clearly still the same case today. Mm. Three years later, $300 million grossed last year. I think they're up to like, I don't know, they're getting like 450 or $500 million in fundraising or something, some, or maybe at that point now. Pattern still holds true. Mm. But you identified those early and you used that as part of your strategy in figuring out both your budget and what you were going to give people because you you were estimating with the least number possible of tiers mm. without being Baroque about it, uh, what you could bring in and what you thought people would do. Mm. Have you followed this? Have you seen that these numbers have, I mean, I've, I've seen this, but have this, has this come true for you too? I don't know your perspective that this initial analysis seems to be what turns out to be true about this kind of fundraising. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I think the biggest mistakes I see people make are uh, one having just way too many tiers. I mean, you, you come to some of these projects and they've got a dollar tier, a $5 tier, a $7 tier, you know, a $14 tier. It, it, people, people, if they want to contribute and they, 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 they're looking at your project, the chances are they don't need seven options below $20, you know? And, and it's just, it, what it does is it complicates the decision process for the person that wants to give you money. Like just make it as simple as possible. Kickstarter is doing so much to reduce the friction between, uh, you were talking earlier about, um, uh, Amanda Palmer and, and, and sort of people giving what they could give, you know, like as much as they could give. It wasn't, it was kind of disconnected from the value of what she was giving them. Um, and you know, and Kickstarter does this amazing thing where it reduces all friction between, uh, the the fans or the readers or the listeners and the artist and so the more complicated you make that by adding more tiers, the harder it is for the for the fan to just land on your page to say yes I want to uh, I want to I want to give you as much money as I can. And then they look at that and you start to have kind of buyer's remorse and you start to go, well, you know, suddenly it's, it's this, you have to chart out, okay, well, if I do this tier, I'll get this thing. But if I do this tier, it's this other thing. And that's kind of neat. Maybe, but you know, do I want, you know, it's suddenly it's no longer this obvious choice between simple, a little bit, a little bit more involved or like this really nice kind of expensive, weird thing that, you know, you, you get at the high end tier to there's this crazy gradient that you have to kind of parse through. So I think that, that one, it's bad for the people that are pledging, but two, people forget how much time it takes to fulfill these pledges. Oh my God. Yes. It is. It is like, every, I, 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 you know, I have friends, I have friends who put up Kickstarter campaigns and I, you know, they emailed me and they say, Hey, I put up this campaign and I go to it and I immediately email them. And I say, take down these tears. You don't want to do this. You, you know, thousand, we're giving a thousand, you know, handmade, uh, you know, like egg baskets or something like that. It's like, do you know how long it's going to take to produce a thousand, you know, you know, handmade eggs, egg baskets and oh so, yeah people people underestimate there's like all these stages at which people underestimate things and fulfilling the rewards ridiculous. yeah and one of the things that's interesting is there's companies that are now arising that are helping right. both plan and fulfill rewards which right. I think is great because then it right. takes that step you know for certain kinds of things and you go back and people do want an authentic experience they're willing to pay more for something authentic so having an authentic handmade or personal experience at the top end you know that's where people sometimes come in and they stretch or they're like well I have $500 sitting here and I would like to um 
Um, you know, for instance, in Amanda Palmer's her five thousand dollar house concert, she said a ton of those. I mean, these, it wasn't people at five thousand dollars burning a hole in the pocket. It was fifty or to a hundred people who would get together on Facebook, figure out they're in the same place, and pool fifty and hundred dollars mm-hmm. each. Right, and right. you're like, so there still were pledging at that lower level, but they got this bigger reward by self-organizing right, around right, it. Right, right, but right. but I think you're right. Yeah, God, oh my God, do people underestimate every project that I follow, every project that I've pledged to dozens, there's that well, we finally got the T-shirts, <laughs> and now right. we're packaging them, and we realize we don't know how to send postage right, or, right, for right, Ulan Bator, right. and um, you know the people in Kazakhstan. It's going to be a little bit longer, you know. Well, well you know, because fundamentally, a lot of these projects are are pivoting around one central uh, reward. You know, it's like there's a, there's the one super there's there's the one reason why this thing exists. It's a documentary film. It's a, it's an album. It's a book. Whatever. Um, and so the reality is, is the people pledging they kind of don't give a about everything else you know it's mm-hmm. like there's you know they don't care if they get stickers they don't care if they get pins they don't care if they get uh, a t-shirt it's kind of nice but really the thing that that most of the folks want i think when you come to most of these campaigns is that one core thing i want to see the documentary and in fact a lot of times i'll what i'll do is i'll pledge more money but i'll select uh, the simple tier so i'll select the 50 dollar tier but i'll give 200 bucks or whatever, because I actually don't want these other things. I, you know, I've, I've gotten enough packages now with, you know, little stickers or cases or weird things in them that were sort of supplementary items to these, these bigger, these other campaigns. And I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm so allergic to clutter and I'm so, uh, I have such a, such a adverse reaction to, to sort of accumulating material things that I just, I don't know what to do with these things when I get them now. I can understand why you're spending a lot of time in Tokyo then. (laughs) But I think your pledge rewards were very much aligned with that sort of Japanese notion of of the well-chosen simplicity. So, you know, you weren't offering, as you say, it wasn't like stickers and whatever. It was like for $250, you get, you know, the PDF, a physical book, your name of the book is a backer, the book is signed, and you get this other special thing, and that's it. It's not, and, you know, the the one exception, I would say, the the order of the uh, stick that I mentioned earlier, you know, they raised $1.3 million last year, like uh, almost uh, just over a year ago, and um, they had like 4,000 levels, I swear to God. Like, you go down, and what was interesting is I had a friend who's a cartoonist, uh, Matt Boris, who we'll have on the program in the not-too-distant future, he did a Kickstarter for a book he wanted to produce. And um, he was planning, uh, you know, this was one of the things that kicked a lot of cartoonists and uh, into it with the order of the sticks results. And so I did a little analysis for him. I looked through all these levels. They actually did raise a lot of money at many of these crazy levels because mm. their fan base is so particular. There were specific things that people actually wanted that mm. you had to pledge at specific levels for. So there's a ridiculous, they are the one that breaks the distribution model at sure. that level, even though sure. so many others fit it because of that. But you can't look at them and say, oh, well, they, and I've had people say this, they have, you know, 50 levels. I should have 50 levels. Like, no, no. They bear their unique. You right, can't generalize right, from right, that. Right. Look at Craig's Kickstarter <laughs> rather keep, than... Keep it you simple. When, yes. when, you have, when you have a brand where you have 10 million fans, you know, it's like the Veronica Mars campaign just launched, I think, yesterday, and they raised like seven trillion dollars in, in, in fifteen <laughs> yeah, by the, seconds. By the time this airs, they'll probably hit ten million dollars. But they, yeah, they did. They, they hit two million dollars in like twelve hours or yeah. something. And I don't know, you know, when this and it's already at like two point five million this morning when we're taping. In that case, do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, have as many. And also, I mean, if you look at the tiers, there's there's like four or five people that are kind of involved with the process. So it's not just like 
two dudes in a in a in a in a bedroom kind of running the campaign. You know, it's like a movie studio running the campaign. Yeah, so. and it's also there's that thing. There's still at the at the bottom level what they're doing. It's mostly physical goods. Most of what they're right. doing is sending out DVDs. Right. And uh, and the star is going to record a bunch of short right. answering right. machine messages for people over a few days. You know, at right. some point in the future. Right. But I think that's where you know that's the difference between. We're going to make something. You knew how to make a book, and you knew how to make this kind of book. So when you went into this project, you had a budget, you knew what it was going to cost, and you knew sort of how to do it, as opposed to we're going to make this complicated um, watch that no one's ever made before, and um, we know how we think we're going to make it, and in production, it turns out at the quantity that we're doing it that, wow, this really isn't going to work, and it takes an extra six months, which is fine. You know, it's fine also as well, but there's those extremes of we're doing something no one's ever done before, or we're doing something that's well characterized and all we really have to do is budget and plan for it well. Right, right, right. And, well, and, and, and to, get, to, to kind of circle back to your question about just writing that write-up, writing Kickstart-up, um, I, was, I, I was speaking at uh, uh, Stanford two days ago talking to a bookmaking class, and uh, we were talking about uh, the Kickstarter project, and we were also talking about the Flipboard book. So the book I did um, at the end of my my time at Flipboard um, that was kind of documenting documenting the production process of the of the iPhone app. Mm. Um, and uh, the Kickstarter essay was interesting because it, it we'd finished the campaign and. Books in the Age of the iPad also kind of falls into this category where it's it's a, it's a meditation on uh, on the work that has been done. So, you know, books in the age of the iPad was really, it was like, okay, I'd worked in indie press for six years, seven years. Like this is the consolidation of my thinking about books after being in the indie press world and watching so many indie presses bang their heads against brick walls and kind of listening to the, the, the murmur around digital and, and things like that. That was, that was kind of a consolidation of that thinking. And so Kickstartup was, you know, I finished this campaign and I, for me, a lot of the value in doing something like the Art Space, Space Tokyo Kickstarter project is not in the actual output. So the, the fact that we got the Art Space Tokyo book reprinted, fantastic. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But to me, the thing that drives me and the thing that's really exciting about all of this is that I understand this process that I didn't understand before. Oh yeah. That 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 to me is kind of what keeps me up at night and I go, "Oh my god, you know, this is this is exciting. I have to, I want to distill this. I want to consolidate this uh because there's there's a, a a multiplying effect that happens when you take an experience and you consolidate it and you put it in a package and you put it out there in a way that is undeniable. You know, and so Taking that 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 uh, are undismissible and easily parsable. So taking that experience with Kickstarter, doing the Kickstarter write up, it, it a it it made me reflect on the whole process, which I think is after you do any big project, you should absolutely spend time to reflect on the process. Um, so it, it helped me do that, but it, it also helped kind of refine the thinking around it. So anything that was a little bit fuzzy, a little bit muddled, um, you know, kind of came together in in writing that essay, and. Then when you put it out there, you know, I put the Kickstarter essay out there and I didn't know how it was going to be received. And to me, a lot of the, 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 the work in there and a lot of the quote unquote research or whatever around the tiers and the, and the, the pricing and things like that was, seemed really, really obvious. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that over the last two and a half years, it's been, it's been about, it's been over two and a half years since that essay has been released. That essay, I get I, I get probably a book mailed to me every few weeks 
that is basically just saying, thank you for writing that essay. This is the book that, that we made because we read that essay and were inspired to do the Kickstarter campaign. Da, 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 da. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and to me, that's really exciting. Okay, great. We raised $24,000 with uh, Artspace Tokyo, $23,000, whatever. And, you know, fine. But taking that experience, consolidating it, putting in that essay, putting it out there, I don't know how much has been unlocked because people were people read that and kind of had a rubric to go about doing a Kickstarter campaign. I don't know, you know, I'd say over a million dollars, you know, a couple million dollars probably in in campaigns were unlocked that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And, to, and so to me, when I look back at the, at the whole process, that that to me is why being able to write that kickstartup essay was was in in a lot of ways why i did the campaign to begin with thanks craig we'll pick up this discussion in a few weeks in part two of the podcast watch our podcast feed for updates you've been listening to the new disruptors a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach we're part of the mule radio syndicate Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.